Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Shooting It Raw. This week, uh, another great episode I'm reissuing. This one was with Gary Stokes back in November of 2020. I'm reissuing it because Gary was also on the Sea Shepherd ships. I mean, Gary was connected to Paul Watson, and uh, I re-released Paul Watson's episode last week. So this is a really good fitting uh, follow-up. So check it out. Uh, Learn be inspired, and let's protect our oceans. Okay, thanks. Photography means for me, uh, it's the most powerful weapon in the world. I see the, the cameras and, um, you know, you can capture moments in time that can change the world um, and influence people by your images. So, you know, you can evoke all kinds of emotions, whether it's, you know, sadness, fear, hatred, um, just awaken people's inner, inner consciousness. Gary Stokes, thank you so much. So thank you so much for joining me on Shooting It Raw. This is such a pleasure. This is such an honor. Uh, you know, I've known you for, wow, at least a decade and I mean, you, when I think of, of a Hong Kong champion, I think of, you know, I think of uh, Alex Hofford. I think of uh, you for sure. And if anything, Alex isn't here anymore. So you're, you're the one on the ground, in the water, on the sand. And, uh, oh man, such a pleasure, such an honor. No, thanks for having me, Ran. It's great to catch up. Okay, so let's dive in with the with the first photo. Um, okay, let me just describe it. You are leaning on your elbows in the sand. I can just see you're wearing a wetsuit or a rash vest of sort. You're wearing gloves, plastic yep. gloves. In your hand is a uh, medical mask. And in front of you, splayed out, are probably about 20 or so medical masks that I assume you've collected off the shore. And yep. behind you, there's, uh, there's the, you're, on, you're on Hong Kong Beach. So behind you, you can just see the rocks of, of either, either on an island or something. And there may yep. be a boat behind you. It looks like a zodiac of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so pretty, pretty good description. So that photo <laughs> was taken uh, just yesterday. So that's oh. why I included it. Oh, wow. Perfect. Um, so it's the, I haven't even put it out on social media yet. So you're the first to see it. Nice. Um, so yeah, back in February, uh, we've been doing these research trips out to the Soko Islands on marine debris and, and studying microplastics and trash. And it was back in February that we suddenly started noticing all these face masks washing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we collected on that 100 meter stretch of beach about 70 face masks. And that's when we realized, hello, we're going to have a big problem here. And that mm-hmm. was obviously right. This was six weeks after, you know, people started using masks en masse. And uh, my colleague out there, Naomi Brennan, who also took this photo, um, I, we collected up all these uh, masks. I put them on a piece of rope and I just said, hey, Naomi, take a picture. We took that picture. Uh, I posted it out. We had over a million views 
by the following morning. And then since then, it just went absolutely crazy. So when we talk about pictures having an influence, I mean, that picture has been around the world more times than probably a satellite um, of me holding up a string of masks on the beach. Not something you really want to be made famous for, but, um, you know, it really did wake up conscious people about what they're doing with their masks, which was the only intention was just like, hey, guys, be a bit more responsible yeah, we know there is a, 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 a pandemic going on. Please wear a mask, but try and wear reusable because this is where they're all ending up. Mm -hmm. And then since then, my colleague, Till, who's my partner in Oceans Asia, uh, and his research team have been, we've been putting together a big paper, um, which is about to be released. Um, and we've calculated that roughly 1.56 billion masks will enter the marine environment Billions. this year this billion. year 1.56 billion so that's uh, a scary amount yeah that's that's a number to to for sure scare people because these masks yeah. are you know they're, they're is it pet plastic like how which kind of plastic well do they're they made they're made of spun uh spun plastics you know polypropylene and all sorts um right. and they just break down into smaller and smaller parts i mean i went out there yesterday just to just to comb the beach and we just we had an hour because we were doing some acoustic work with the dolphins so in one hour we had we collected 54 just on that same beach wow so you know i mean that's uh and this is the socos which is uninhabited mm -hmm. nobody goes there that's why we use it as a research place for our plastic studies so let's uh yeah it's just what came in on the tide right okay the socos islands are how many islands are we talking so, about? So the, the Socos is a small cluster of, uh, it's about six islands, two, two larger ones. They're located at the southwest of Lantau. So they're right near the border with uh, the Hong Kong border with China. They're at the entrance of the Pearl River Delta. So one of the, the five big river systems of China. So, you know, we have a lot of marine traffic going in and up and down there. But uh, the Soko Islands are kind of unique because... The only habitation they really had was from the 70s and 80s uh, when we had a Vietnamese prison camp out there, or refugee oh. camp, not prison camp, sorry. <laughs> but refugee Refugees. camp was built out there, and that's now just the foundations left. Oh. So nobody lives there, uh, but it is uh, the home, and it's also the overlapping home of or range of the Chinese white dolphin and also the finless porpoise. So we have these two resident species in Hong Kong. Uh, and that in the Socos is where they overlap, which is why we do a lot of the dolphin and uh, finless porpoise studies out there. Hmm. So it's a, it's a unique place. It's beautiful. It's my little special place for what I like to call social distancing. Uh -huh. for, it's, a, it's a very powerful image because um, you're, you're your face is very neutral. You've got your sunglasses like resting on your forehead. There's a nice bright sun. You're looking at the at the camera. Props to Naomi uh, for for making this this portrait because from somebody listening to the audio to your voice um, and also maybe looking at the image, your 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 face communicates this like, come on guys, what the fuck, man, like. Is it we have to do better? And yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, we have to do better in 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 all areas. I mean, when what you don't see in that picture is the rest of the beach, which mm -hmm. is completely covered in trash, and it's almost uh, 
you almost feel a bit of a hypocrite. I'm walking amongst the trash looking for masks, mm. you know, and, and yet there's just bottles and packaging and just you name it. I mean, everything you can find there. Uh, and yet that's become almost the norm. And now we're looking for something unique like the face mask. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, every time we go back there, um, you know, Naomi is a, is a, is a cetacean scientist, you know? Okay. But we get on the beach and we steal the trash and it's just so soul destroying. We just look at each other and just think, Oh God, mm -hmm. what, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. When I met you, it was probably 2006 or so. And, um, uh, it was when this crazy guy did this protest in the shark street, <laughs> walking through along all the shark fin vendors with a shark hat. Oh, that old thing. And makeup. Yeah. Hey, don't, 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 don't forget and the, the makeup. makeup. And the makeup. <laughs> and everybody, all the shark fin traders were thinking, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> and I was thinking the same. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It was cool. Hours. It was yeah. the first protest, I believe, mm -hmm. in the shark fin streets of hong kong right but but so, it, it, enough, enough about me enough about me let's talk about you because look the, the i had to get that in there rant sure sure <laughs> <laughs> but look like at the time did you have your marine conservation organizations or were you because i remember i know you as a first as a as a photo photographer as a photojournalist yeah i was i was uh doing photography full-time um and i was a dive instructor as well and obviously you know, as a diver and a photographer and doing underwater photography, you started to sort of spiral into the conservation world, really, because you're seeing the degradation of, you know, what's going on in the in the uh, environment. Yeah, you can't, um, you can't act. Uh, you can't unsee these things. And obviously, I have a passion for sharks. And we are in the shark fin, you know, ground zero. So uh, obviously, that was drawing to it. Um, and my, there was, there was the three amigos, as I call it, which was myself, Alex Hofford, as you mentioned, and Paul Hilton. Mm -hmm. So the three of us were photographers. We were, you know, doing uh, all sorts of corporate photography, some news journalism. And, uh, yeah, and obviously we we're all passionate about sharks. Yeah. You guys are amazing. I mean, you're, you've, you're all amazing in your own ways. So, so when did you start your marine, the proper marine uh, organization? Well, I mean, back at that Plug time, it. I just wanted to have a little platform where I could write stories and put my pictures. And I, I set up Oceanic Love, if you remember. And uh -huh. I wanted to do a clothing brand that was sort of fashion for awareness. Um, and some of my images uh, that I'd taken got picked up by Sea Shepherd. Mm. Um, and I had been with Paul Hilton to Tonga filming humpbacks. And that was the year when uh, Japan put humpbacks onto the list mm -hmm. uh, of their kill list, 50 humpbacks. And that really set something of fire inside me. Um, I started looking around and seeing what I could do and who was doing stuff. I found obviously Greenpeace were going down there and holding up banners at the time. And then I saw this video of this crazy guy um, doing exactly what I thought we needed to do. And that was put the ships in the way and just blockade and stop by whatever means necessary that was, you know, within the realms of the law. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, 
the two main rules were nobody gets hurt and you don't break any laws. But other than that, mm-hmm. you know, get in the way and stop them killing the whales. And that was Sea Shepherd. And I saw a video and then a couple of months later, it was just bizarre. They contacted me for some pictures of uh, bluefin tuna and then invited me to come on board as a photographer. And I went to Antarctica in 2010 and my life changed completely. I mm. came back and I was just, this is what I want to do. Wow. And I ended up becoming the director for Sea Shepherd for Asia. So one of the global directors. And Are you still with Sea Shepherd? No. So, so I was with Sea Shepherd until about two years, about two and a half years ago. And through funding reasons, basically, uh, decided to wind up some areas, you know, to get funding and put towards the ships. So they decided to shut down Asia, mm-hmm. uh, which didn't make any sense to me at the time, really, because we weren't costing a lot. But, you know, obviously, when I joined, we had three ships. We now have Sea Shepherd now have 10, 11 ships. Ooh, wow. Uh, and ships cost a lot of money to yeah. run. Um, so the, the money needs to be, and the, the one thing that I did love about Sea Shepherd was the money went to the fuel tanks, basically. Amazing. Any money you donate to Sea Shepherd isn't squandered. It does go directly to the front line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what really attracted me because there's too many NGOs that just squander it on advertising and fancy offices and big salaries for the top people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sea Shepherd were literally doing what they said. They put the money where the mouth was and got out there. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so they obviously had to cut money where they could um, and direct it to the ships, which were in Mexico and Africa at the time. So so does that mean you shifted your, your efforts? So I, I then, you know, obviously I'm doing a lot of work here with, you know, around the region, not just in Hong Kong, but I'm doing a lot of work on obviously the shark fin industry, uh, but also on a wider scope, the illegal fishing, mm-hmm. IUU fishing, working with different governments around the region. Um, and then obviously I work with plastics and things like mm-hmm. that. So I still need to carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And even, you know, Sea Shepherd realized that. Um, so I set up Oceans Asia yeah. uh, with my colleague, uh, Till, who was my roommate when I went to Ant- Antarctica. Mm. So we set that up. Um, and we're basically, you know, our tagline was uh, intelligence-based conservation. Uh, and basically, we want to look at more of the sort of law enforcement, the legal sort of side of things. Um, so our investigations are based on fact and solid evidence rather than speculation and working on empathy and making people feel sorry for the sharks or mm. whatever. It's like, let's get them on the law, get them on something that sticks and get prosecutions. Let me just uh, yeah plug that. The people I get on the podcast are all doing amazing work and you're way up there and i i just love what you're doing so let's plug so it's www.oceansasia.org right yep that's right right. awesome uh you hinted it at it in in the in the in the conversation in terms of illegal fishing and the second image you sent through is I'm assuming it's a, a Chinese boat of fishermen. It's not a very big boat. It's a, you know, it's considerably... It's no, like maybe... this, this one is a, a gillnet boat, a mainland gillnet boat that is coming into Hong Kong waters. So in that previous photo you said, mentioned about the uh, Zodiac there, that's uh, Sea Wolf. That's my uh, small rib that we have, mm-hmm. rigid inflatable boat. 
And with that, that gets us out onto the waters. So obviously with COVID-19, you know, we're not getting to travel. We're not getting to go to around the region and do stuff. But we still have so much that we can do at home. So, you know, Seawolf allows us to get out there, uh, do our rec recordings for the acoustics, get to these remote locations. But one of the big things we're working on at the moment is illegal fishing in Hong Kong. So we're getting boats that are coming across the border from the mainland mm -hmm. and basically poaching in Hong Kong waters. Mm. Um, and we've been identifying uh, vessels that have been coming in, building a database of images and evidence and working together with the AFCD, the Agricultural Fisheries Conservation Department, and also the Marine Police. Mm. Um, so we've been working closely with both those. Um, the illegal fishing falls under the remit of AFCD. Yeah. So they're the ones who are supposed to be, you know, uh, prosecuting or making arrests and things like that. But sometimes, you know, obviously these fishermen uh, don't want to be stopped. Um, and you need to full they need to call in the marine police who have mm. the uh, the assets available. They have the fast boats. They have the guns for starters. Oh. Um, so if they do need to do boardings, they can do boardings quite safely. Yeah. Um, we called one in last week, and uh, the marine police were fantastic. I mean, they they literally sent the charge of the light brigade. We had three fast interceptor boats that are you know they'll do 50, 60 knots. Oh wow! Uh, with a with a, a full arm boarding team. Um, and they pursued this Chinese vessel that had come across the border. They pursued it into Chinese waters oh, wow. across the border. So they also got permission from Guangzhou to uh, for hot pursuit, and they bought the boat back, and uh, they prosecuted it. Oh, great. So At the moment, I believe it's actually today the fishermen are in court. Wow. So, so the know. big the big question the big the big questions that pop up in my mind are one are you using some of the experience that you gained with uh, Sea Shepherd out on the water I mean like the the oh ab absolutely I mean my uh, I mean I was doing a lot of this activism as you know before I joined Sea Shepherd and that's why as a photographer you know the image is so powerful mm -hmm. and so useful. So, uh, you know, what I'm using when I go out on the boat at the moment um, is drones. I am big, big into drones okay. uh, with my work. Um, they allow me to, I can see a boat maybe two, three kilometers away before they even notice me. Yeah. We stop the, you know, we stop Seawolf and I launch uh, a small drone from there, from a Mavic. And I fly the two kilometers over and I'll be above them filming them without them even knowing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can zoom in on them and I can actually get them and that's all geolocation. Wow. So we've got time, date, we've got the evidence. That's yeah, great. we've got them actually fishing illegally. And even the AFCD were just saying, how do you get this? Because whenever we go, we, we don't get to film them. Right. Um, well, it's because you come in a boat that's so noisy, both the Marine Police and the AFCD launchers you can hear from almost five kilometers away. Yeah. So the fishermen just drop the nets in the water with a float and uh, just go back across the border and wait. And it's really quite frustrating. So what's happening now is is we're starting to evolve. And, um, you know, I'm more like the forward operating, you know, the forward observer. Mm -hmm. I can see them. I can get all the footage and the evidence and that. And then I call in the marine police wow. and they'll come in and you know, if what's, they needed my my evidence, I could provide it. What's, what's the what's their attitude to you? Like, do they think like, oh, great, this guy again, 
or do you are they genuinely appreciative are they like what is their when you're when you're talking to them how do they who, who the fishermen or the authorities the, well, <laughs> the fishermen yeah. don't li- the fishermen don't like me for some reason uh, no the uh i mean afcd have been really really appreciative really supportive uh whenever i'm sending stuff into them they just you know they add it to their database and uh the guys at AFCD are brilliant. I mean, mm. they've really been great. Yeah. Uh, Marine Police, I was invited to the headquarters to okay. give a full briefing and oh, presentation wicked. on illegal fishing. Wicked. So I went and saw all the top brass and, and gave a full presentation of, this is what I've seen. And obviously, it's not your remit to do any of this. But yeah. if AFCD asks... Here's what we've got. Right. And then Marine Police said, yeah, absolutely. This is great. Uh, brilliant work. Let's do something on this. So they really have cranked down. You may have seen in the media, there's been posts coming out. Uh, and there's quite a few more illegal fishing wow. busts, which is which is great. And that's, uh, you know, that's testament to both both agencies actually working together and working hard. Great. One of the things I, I, I see, or if I, I just realized I haven't done, is kind of explain what the photo is. So essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a, you'd say a 30 foot boat, I guess, uh, Chinese so vessel. So that, that, that boat is, um, so we had, we had several. We had, we had a fleet of what they call snake net boats, and they were coming from further down, west down the coast, a couple of hundred kilometers down. And they come up and they drop this, like, it's almost like a lobster pot, but like a square concertina. And they run, you know, it's like a, a, a box that they join together 30 foot segments and they make maybe two or three kilometers and they lie on the seafloor. Mm. Those were the snake net boats. We documented about four that we saw regularly. Uh, we gave it to AFCD. They gave it to the mainland authorities. And suddenly now we don't see those boats anymore. Oh, okay. So I don't know what happened with those. Right. The boat in the picture that you're referring to is what we call a gill net boat. They use the monofilament gill nets. And they're dropping these, um, obviously, at the moment, because of COVID, the high traffic of Macau high-speed ferries that were going down through the channel south of Lantau um, has stopped. So we have no high-speed traffic, which is great news for the dolphins. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing all these dolphins coming back to that area and utilizing that area. But the problem is we've got all these illegal fishing boats now coming in and setting these walls of death, as I call them. Wow. I mean, gill nets are just invisible. And obviously, for a marine mammal getting caught in one of these, they need to breathe air. And if sure. they get caught in one now, you know, it's game over. Yeah. So that's why I'm really focusing on these gill net boats. We've identified at least 14 of them oh, wow. and documented them. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're basically mainland fishermen that are coming into our waters because in 2012, we stopped trawling. Mm-hmm. So we used to have these big boats, big industrial boats with their big long arms out the side, dragging the seafloor up and destroying the entire ecosystem. And that was banned in Hong Kong waters. So what we've seen now is fish life exploding back Mm -hmm. and really bouncing back. And nature will come back very quickly if we just give it a chance. And um, obviously, because of that, we've got loads of fish. Right. And across the border... They don't. Yeah, exactly. So the fishermen are now coming in and poaching. Right. So, so yeah. So in the fo- so the photo has essentially like one third of the image is the boat. On the boat, there are like three guys uh, wearing like overalls, dragging in the uh, the the fish nets. 
the sky is kind of overcast. There's like a low ceiling, low cloud. Way, well, not too far, maybe uh, one or two kilometers in the background, you could see a little bit of land, some islands, I guess. Yeah, that's South Lantau. Oh, that is South Lantau, okay. Um, and so how did you get this close for this image? So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got very close. I mean, I've got close enough to actually almost touch them sometimes. So what I do is I'll fly the drone in, I'll get the evidence I need, and then I'll come in with the boat and we'll come right up next to them. And... And I literally come alongside with a big 7200 lens and I'm photographing them and I'm almost getting portrait face mm -hmm. photos. Um, Which you need. Now, what I used to do, um, because I didn't want to waste police time, I mean, you know, calling the police every time and what was happening was they would just run for the border. So I decided that <laughs> and it, was, it was kind of fun in the, at the beginning. Um, I got a friend of mine who's an actress, Chinese actress, and I asked her to record me a, a, an audio message that I broadcast over a loudspeaker. And <laughs> the message was basically in, in, in Mandarin, and it was, uh, you are fishing illegally in Hong Kong waters. We are documenting your activities and we'll pass to the authorities. Oh, Please good. leave immediately. Well, I was going out at night. So I'd be out in the middle of the ocean at night, lights off, and I'd be sitting there floating. And then a trawler, the big trawlers would come in. Mm. And um, I would stalk them and make sure they were well and truly inside Hong Kong waters. Um, you know, sometimes they were in as close as Shekpik Prison, which is right. Yeah, right, right up, it's right up good, to the... Good, eight, eight or nine kilometers inside. And I would sneak up and then get really close. And then what I would do, because the ocean's so quiet out there at night... Mm -hmm. I would turn on this broadcast and put on a big spotlight. So all they would see is a massive spotlight come on, this message come out in like a very authoritarian voice. Mm -hmm. And you've never seen people run so quick. Oh, they wow. couldn't get the nets in fast enough. They run across the border. Good and it you. was effective to get them out and also to disrupt the fishing because yeah. time is money. So, so long as your nets are, are not in the water, you're not making money. Um, and well, I was doing this regularly, and then I started even doing it in the daytime off of Taiyo on the on the west coast of Lantau. And, and the, the same effect, I would turn up, whether it was with the message or just with the cameras, mm -hmm. they knew they were in the wrong, yeah. and they knew I was... I'd probably already called the authorities, and they're on the way. Wow. Um, so they would just run for the borders. Wow, so wow. that's why we could get so close. I have had a couple throw things at me. Um, we had one try to run me over um, wow. when we were out there. But, yeah, uh, the, the gillnet boats, like in that picture, I'm not so I'm not worried about. The trawlers, uh, even the police told me to back off, which I have, and uh, I'm not touching the trawlers <laughs> anymore. Well, for sure. I mean, they just need to nudge you and you're, you're gone. You're, you're... Uh, the, trawlers, the trawlers are an entity of their own, and... I will leave that with the authorities to deal with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, they are they are very big, and they are also a lot of them are, are Hong Kong based. Well, okay, they're not mainland. Right. So, oh, dude, so sobering. And speaking of sobering, um, let's uh, let's move on to the next image, which is just heartbreaking. Odd. Oh, Gary, what is this? Whoa. Okay, so yeah, this is the kind of image that just just hits you in the head. So 
Uh, just I'm going to describe what we see. Okay, so on the left side of the photo, it's just a, a road. It's um, it's one of the roads going into this area, for people who don't know, called Kennedy Town, Sayang Pun, on Hong Kong Island. On the right, it, the road is onto the, you know, it's basically facing sets of uh, commercial shops. Uh, one is called Score Rich Trading Company, and that that's the thing about these 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 uh, businesses. They've got these really weird, innocuous sounding uh, names that are you know the companies are registered as like you know Million Smiles Trading or you know something really just kind of out there. Happy Oceans yeah. Limited, yeah. And so <laughs> the image it's a, it's a it's a blue sky above. Far, far in the distance, you can see like the, the basically it's the buildings where they have the hydrofoil, the Macau ferries, the Macau ferries. Thank you very much. And on the right, about one third of the image is uh, drying in the sunshine, uh, hundreds, thousands of tails. Yep. Okay. So what is, I know what the story. I can guess what the story is, but. Why is this? Well, how me? How recent is this photo? Uh, that one was uh, a couple of years ago, I think. That was about two years ago. I just wanted to show something of what we see virtually every day. You can go, you can go down to Shengwan pretty much any day where the sun's out. I mean, like right now, it's gorgeous mm -hmm. and there's hardly any humidity. Uh, and the shark fin traders, I mean, often mostly shark fins are arriving in hong kong already dried so they get dried at source you know whichever country is exporting normally a third world developing country they've already dried but quite often while they're in storage here they might get damp or mm -hmm. moist with the humidity so quite often they'll vent them and air them out and they use the streets and the pavements mm -hmm. uh, and you'll be walking through central and it's not uncommon to be walking along and seeing pavements or or even the the road completely blocked yeah with shark fins so okay so the the, the pavement is this sort of dark 18 percent gray if you know anything about photography um it's this kind of really deep rich gray and then uh the 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 fins the tails uh are almost uniformly shaped in terms of size they're all like it they're just they're all kind of piled on top of each other drying in the sun and they're essentially the same uh color as the pavement but because of the shadow and, and everything you really kind of see this relief and i guess it's they're it's they're spilling out of these can well not canvas but these like cargo bags and they're just yeah they're just drying in the sun and it's it's... Yeah, they're actually the tails off of blue sharks, um, and blue sharks are pretty much uh, the number one chosen shark of choice uh, in the shark fin markets of Hong Kong. Uh, they're certainly the most prolific. And th that shipment I came across uh, had arrived from Spain, mm. um, and Spain being one of the first or second uh, largest exporters of sharks, shark fin to Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, and that shipment came in and I started photographing the, the funny part behind this whole thing was obviously the guy didn't know who I was and, and I'm outside and I'm photographing stuff on the street, which is totally legal. Mm -hmm. And the, the, you know, the sort of shop assistant guys that were the ones who were sort of putting things out and pulling things in, um, they're shooing me away and telling me I can't. And then the, uh, 
the boss of the shop comes out and said, oh, no, it's no problem. You can uh, take whatever you want. Take whatever photos you want. You know, mm-hmm. he was pretty, he, he didn't really care. Yeah. And uh, he knew I was legally within my right to photograph whatever I wanted. Exactly. And we just got chatting away. And, and I said, no, it's just my son is doing a project on sharks. And I put on an Australian accent. <laughs> In Australia, I said, I don't know why everybody makes a big deal about all this shark fin stuff. Because, you know, we eat all the meat. You know, and shark, sharks are uh, eaten in fish and chips in Australia. And, you know, by doing that, it sort of diffused it. And mm-hmm. the guy was pretty cool. And we're standing there, and it was a hot day. As you said, at blue sky, it was a really hot day. And it, we're standing on the doorstep, and I was like a vampire being wait, you know, waiting to be invited <laughs> in. And while I'm talking to the guy, he just let me, you know, he said, just come inside, it's too hot. So I went inside his, uh, his shop, and... Uh, we're chatting away, and it, I was, like, playing dumb of, like, which fins are these? Are these the ones on the top, the Jaws ones? And he's like, no, those are the pectorals, as he points to this giant 50-kilo sacks, these white sacks mm. that are 50 kilos each. And then I see past his desk, and then there's the storeroom down the back, and it is chocker of sharks and shark fin. And I said, wow. And all this time, I've got my SLR hanging around my neck, but it's actually recording. Right. Um, so I'm recording the entire thing. And then, uh, I said, is there any, would, would it be possible to take a photo of that? It'd be great for my son's school project. He said, sure, if you can stand the smell. Hmm. So I end up standing in this storeroom just as far as you can say. I mean, it got, yeah. I don't even want to think how many sharks would have been in there. And it stank. I mean, it was like the urea, the uric acid that you get. Um, it smells like cat's piss Mm -hmm. basically it's got this very unique smell and i just literally got in there and while i'm filming i see all these cctv cameras around and i thought let's get the hell out of here pretty quick because if he finds out at the time you know he's got the director of sea shepherd asia standing in his storeroom uh with a camera it probably wouldn't go down too well so i got out of there pretty quick but got the footage so, so for, for people listening, I just want to stress something about the about the, the the photo and and the scale and all this stuff. So, so on the street, there's all these shark tails, and um, I would say they're all they're very very close to in size to one another, and um, it they're probably about it looks like. So it's a tail. So it kind of looks like a like a Sith, right? So it's like a kind of. You got the, 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 a fin at the top, and it kind of goes down, and it, and it goes to the bottom. And they've been cut off at the tail, so you can see the slight, the, the slice. And in there, you can see the, the, the dried shark meat and then the cartilage. And each one is at least a foot and a half big, you know, maybe even more. And just for scale, there are, let's just say, there's at least a thousand out in the sun. And... You have to think that each tail is a shark that is at least, I don't know, like three or four yards or meters long. So probably a good four or five hundred pound animal. And, um, and, and this little corner on the street, this one shop, and then as you say, there's all their bags and bags and bags and bags of stuff inside. Um, it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling that think about how many animals were just harvested like this and what an impact that would make in the habitat. So it's Spain, right? So Spain is one of the worst culprits 
when it comes to shark fishing. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things that I did just to get a gauge of scale, I actually went down there at night and I set up some time lapse cameras pointing oh, wow. at that shop. Um, and then over the next few days, they were recording. Um, and then I watched the guys come out with one of the sacks and lay out all the fins and then another one. And then I actually watched as they collected them and and the entire street, not when it was the, the tails, because the tails are a bit bigger, but when it was just the fins, I could then calculate out how many fins made up that area of, uh, you know, it was six bags of sharks, so that's 300 kilos, and I worked out the, the, the dimensions of how much it would cover, and then from my photo inside, knowing roughly how many sacks there were, I mean, you could have covered them from Central all the way down to Kennedy Town. So it's a couple uh, of kilometers. Along one street. And that's pretty scary. That's, that's a couple when of you kilometers, think, right? That's one shop. Yeah. And we've got about 100 of these shops. Yeah. And that's the scale. So when people say 100 million sharks a year, which is a you know ridiculous number, it's far more than that. I've always said two to 250 million sharks are dying each year. Um, and when people sort of go, oh, it's impossible. There's not that many sharks in the world. Well, you just need to come down and just have a look and you can see the scale and the magnitude of it. Yeah. Um, no, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and look, look, like I, I, just to get away from something, I mean, my, my approach is more like, it's just so, it's just patently unsustainable. And, you know, when I had, when I had, uh, the, the podcast with Sharon Kwok, she was like, well, here's the thing. Because it's dried and this stuff will last forever, they're just sitting on a massive amount of money, right? Like the, the shopkeepers, yep. pff, they're not going to change. Well, they don't, they don't need to. I mean, it, it also, there is, a, there is something to bear in mind there. there. There are shark fin shops that only do shark fin. And then there's the dried seafood and they do everything. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, you know, obviously they could, they could stop shark fin tomorrow, but still carry on their business. Um, their business of destroying the ocean <laughs> yeah, exactly. on mass, Pilfering. because what we do see in the markets, obviously are all the other species and most of those get completely overlooked. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're just putting together a, an in-depth study of the sea cucumber industry. Right. You know, I mean, people go sea cucumbers, seriously, you know, Nobody's done a big campaign on save the sea cucumber, yeah. but we need to because these are all integral species in a in a in a biodiverse web of life, and you know we we need every single one of these species. You, you know, we all talk about the sharks, but meanwhile, abalone, uh, fish more, sure, the, which are the swim bladders, the stomachs of fish, mm -hmm. croaker fish. Um, all of these are coming in by the ton. Every yeah. single day. And if you think of a ton of sea cucumber, I mean, that's a hell of a lot of sea cucumbers. And they, they, you know, filter the ocean basically through their stomachs. I mean, they keep everything clear and clean. You take them out, you end up with dead zones. So they're important. Uh, abalone, um, you know, and a lot of this is also connected with organized crime, funding organized yeah. crime. Yeah. So, you know, especially with like the abalone in, in South Africa and things like that. That money then goes to buy weapons and arms, which is then used in, you know, poaching, for example. Right. Um, so it's 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 all connected, um, which is why wildlife crime is, yeah, we've been sort of talking with ADM Capital and that needs to go under the 
serious crime ordinance in Hong right. Kong because at the moment it's just petty crimes sure. and and you know we get people bringing in Totawaba swim bladders which is the you know the endangered swim bladders from Mexico which is driving the vaquita porpoise to extinction mm. and these things are worth more than their weight in gold mm. you know by gram we actually had a big bust uh, a year ago and I was allowed to go in with AFCD and a film crew and we were actually doing a, a documentary at the time uh sea of shadows and um we we actually got in there and there was two guys who bought two suitcases full of these swim bladders from mexico um they flew from mexico to korea korea down to here these guys flew halfway around the world they didn't even have a spare change of underpants hmm. uh they had nothing just a suitcase yeah. full of swim bladders and then they pleaded they didn't understand that they were illegal. Um, each of those were over uh, 1.6 million US dollars each case, wow. full of them. Well, okay, so ho- <sighs> okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, we no, could no, talk no, no, about no. something nice, actually, shouldn't we? But it's no. really hard. It's really hard. It's um, you know, this is the future for our kids. I mean, I've yeah. got two lovely kids, and you know, we've got to do something because it's happening on our watch. So. Uh, Okay, look, unfortunately, wanna... it's not great to talk about, but we have to. No, we have to face it. We have to face it. I, I am, yep. I'm totally with you. Now, what I want to do is let's just rewind or pull back a little bit, um, just, to, just to kind of. Okay, I want to geek out for a second. You're clearly a photographer in that. You know the the photo you made of the of the the last photo there of the of the shark tails. Um, I, I note that even though you're, you're, you're shooting it with a wide angle, there is still a distortion correction, right? So there's like the buildings all look straight. It's still, well, (laughs) it's still, you're at the end of the day, you're still formally or technically creating these very, uh, um, well defined images. Okay. Let's rewind, rewind, rewind. Okay. So what when did you kind of look at a camera and 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 feel a sense of oh wait a second this can be something like if we like when did photography turn into uh, a um a tool of expression for you um well i've always been interested in photography ever since i was a kid um and you know just did it as hobby stuff getting the practical photographer magazine and trying to take these beautiful sort of sunsets and landscapes and things like that. Uh, and it was nice to make some pretty pictures, but they, you know, they weren't really, you know, you, at those times it was film and you'd print them out and they'd sit in a album somewhere and you'd never look at them ever again. And then it was, then I started doing underwater, which is a bit more technical. And it was only on a trip to Malta that I started to see, I went back to Malta where I grew up. And I went back 28 years later and I went snorkeling in the bay I used to snorkel in and it was all dead. And that's when I started to realize, hang on a minute, um, you know, this has happened in my lifetime. And the more you start looking, the more you start seeing. And uh, yeah, that's when I sort of really started to send messages out and pictures out that necessarily weren't pretty, mm-hmm. but they told the story. Um you know, I mean, some of them you have to censor. I mean, you know, I have to self-censor some of the stuff I put out because I've seen some pretty barbaric and horrible things. And 
you know, you've got to really, you know, as much as you want to tell the story, some of it is just, you know, I had a video I was in Sri Lanka with, uh, with Paul, um, and we were, we were filming blue whales at the time. And, and in the early mornings, we would go down to Marissa, uh, in the South of Sri Lanka, where we, the port we went out from, and we'd go down early, go to the markets and see what sharks they were landing. And that was when we discovered manta rays mm -hmm. and mobula rays being landed and having their gills cut out. And we started photographing this and thinking, this is odd. What's this for? And they said, oh, it's for the Chinese market. And we were like, we've never heard of this before. So we started documenting it. But I never forget, I had one video and they were hacking this mobula ray. And I, was, I had the camera, I was filming between this guy's legs as they were literally cleaving this straight down the middle of the center line and it hit some gallbladder or something this green goo sort of squirt out and i just thought oh my god i feel sick mm -hmm. and you know i looked at the video footage and i, I said to paul i said we're never going to be able to show this to anyone hmm. you know it's worse than any horror movie um so yeah you do you know you do tend to see some of these things and think as barbaric as it is, you, you got to almost censor some of it. If you can um, find, because people will just switch off. You know, if you see too much graphic stuff, yeah. they'll just switch off. If you can make a, a screenshot from that footage uh, to include, because it, it'll be on the on the website and on the, the sort of the YouTube slideshow and all this stuff. Um, sometimes you could, we we it, it's hard to look at, and it but we need to be shaken out of a kind of you know um sleepy state so so i'd have to i'd have to find it it's on one of my old old video files yeah <laughs> this is when i was shooting uh yeah shooting some high def on a it was on a cassette on a video oh, okay <laughs> i'd have to i'll find i'll see if i can find it okay but, yeah, listen. I mean, it was just more of an example of you sure. know people with the imagery you can and Paul and Alex would confirm as well. There's only so much. There's only so far you can go. Right. Because if you go too far, then people just turn off. Sure. And they don't want to see it. They don't want to share it. Um, yeah. The same with all the animal cruelty stuff that you see. You know, people sharing. Um, it gets to a point where people just turn off and yeah. they just don't want to know anymore. They don't want to see it. They 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 go into almost a state of denial. So you, there's a very fine balance of how far you can go to tell the story. Of your work, which I find just so admirable, um, ha, it's, it's pretty funny. Like I had Doug Woodring on here, and I was so like fawning, and I was so you know because he's he's done such really inspiring work that uh, somebody commented, "It's like oh, what a nice little bromance you're having with Doug." And I was just like, "But but fuck, man! Like this guy's amazing." And in the same way, it's like. You know, the the of all the things that you could put your attention to, of all the things that you could put your time and energy to, you're going out. You know, you wake up at six in the morning or five in the morning. You go out on your zodiac. You you get right in there, and and so okay. So I've got two questions. One, what image? Can you think of an image that you've made that was uh, that had a really powerful reaction, but was actually inspiring in an in a positive aspirational sense. Uh, ooh. or are they all just like kind of? Uh, uh, there was I know I don't know if you remember twenty twelve. We had a massive typhoon here that hit, 
and a ship lost six containers of pre-production plastic pellets, the tiny little beads, like ner- they're called nerdles. Mm-hmm. They're almost like BB pellets. And we had 150 tons wash up on our beaches. And, and, and myself and Tracy Reed were the first ones to document it and try to get the message out. And I took one picture of Tracy holding her hands towards the camera with a handful of these they look like beads. They look like pearls. I mean, they, they actually look really pretty. Um, trickling through her fingertips. And I took this one picture, and that we used as the sort of grabber uh, for our social media because we were writing to the government at the time and saying, look, we have a major problem here. Uh, and nobody reacted. We even sent it to newspapers, and nobody reacted. Hmm. And we put that out on social media. We set up a Facebook group. And within a day, we had like 7,000 followers in Hong Kong. Uh, and then we started, we, it, we basically realized that we don't need the media anymore, the right. mainstream media. You can do it on social media. And we motivated and connected with so many people across Hong Kong in such a fast time wow. that everybody was playing catch up afterwards. Um, we had, you know, the government suddenly realized it's a massive problem. I, we called a meeting and I ended up chairing the government's disaster meeting. Oh, wow. Uh, which was funny because see that on the minute, Sea Shepherd chairing the disaster meeting for the pellet spill with all the government departments there. <laughs> but it was great because we actually all got to work together and, mm-hmm. and we mobilized, uh, one day we had, we had 6,000 people on beaches, cleaning beaches. And these were people from all walks of life. We had young kids to grandparents. We had the government agencies. We had the people from the petrochemical company, Sinopec, whose bags they were. It wasn't their fault they were spilt, but it was their bags that were all over the beaches. Um, We had NGOs. We had all these people side by side on the beach cleaning it. And it was beautiful. Wow. Um, and that was the power of social media, and that was also the power of the the image to invoke that that started the ball rolling. Because without those photos, we couldn't have told the story. Right. So how how old um how you, you don't have to how old are your kids? Uh, eight and twelve. Eight and twelve. Yeah, my son's twelve, Jack, and Amber is eight. Okay, let's say they turn to you or some other eight to twelve year old or some other parent or whatever anybody turns to you and says, Mr. Stokes, you know, you've done so many great things. They wouldn't necessarily have that ridiculous accent, but they'd be like, you've done these amazing things. How, what advice can you give them if they want to start following your footsteps or get involved? I mean, you, you the fact that you have been so active with Sea Shepherd and then it, that was the kind of that was a kind of evolution from what you'd been doing anyways and not and and now you've if you kind of gone even beyond sea shepherd to now uh for for oceans asia but so what kind of advice can you give people i think the most important thing is you know conservation starts at home you don't need to go to antarctica all the way to antarctica to save something you know if everybody looked after their own backyard there wouldn't be a problem um, and there's so much people can do here. Everything down to what you put on your plate, knowing where it comes from, you know. So even from your meal, you can start saving the world from what you have on your meal. Ah. Um, you know, I mean, you only need to watch Cowspiracy 
and uh, movies like that where you actually start seeing where your food is coming from mm-hmm. and all this myth of sustainable seafood i mean at the moment i don't believe there is such a thing right a wild wild caught sustainable seafood sure um yeah i mean there's 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 some fishing companies that are getting close but they're also going out to sea alongside other vessels that are not sustainable yeah and not trying to be you've got illegal fishing going on as soon as as soon as that comes in, there is no such thing as sustainable fishing. So, you know, we have to get the enforcement, mm-hmm. stop the illegal fishing boats. And if there's only legal fishing boats, then they can start talking about quota systems, bycatch, methods of catch. So then we might eventually, it's a pipe dream at the moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, to, I mean, to go, you know, to go plant-based, I mean, we've seen a massive uptake in in uh, you know the switch to plant-based. Yeah. Um, hey, Gary. And- yeah, like... Uh, Two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, when it was a, a little while ago, we were we had just come back, I think, from from uh, a tour with uh, Sea Shepherd, and uh, one of the things about I think going on a, on a on a on a sort of expedition with Sea Shepherd is that they say, hey, listen, I hope you're okay eating vegan, and you yep. were running a restaurant. You came back and you're just like, man, I don't know if I want to run this restaurant the way it was. I don't think I think I might get out of the restaurant business. I just I don't know. I think yeah, yeah. I think actually I met you in Singapore Airport, didn't I? You right. Were, uh, we were chatting in Singapore Airport. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been in food and beverage for a long time, um, and I've had shares in a restaurant. I opened a restaurant bar in Discovery Bay. I had small shares, and it got to the point where it was just going against everything I stood for, and I became you know, a hypocrite. I I'm trying to save the world and. And we were serving meat and fish at the time, mm-hmm. even though I was I was already vegan. Um, and I wanted out. And I said to the main shareholder, I want out. I want to sell my shares. And he said, actually, I want out. And um, he was going to sell it to another chain. And I couldn't allow that to happen because we had you know staff that had been with us for 12 years uh, who were loyal. They were like family. So I said to my wife, we're going to buy it. So we bought Hemingway's mm-hmm. and she said, but then now you're going to have a hundred percent in a, in a, in a restaurant that's serving it. I said, no, I'm going to turn it vegan. And she said, you're insane. We're going to lose all our money. Um, and we changed it vegan anyway. And it's been well received, um, because we attracted a whole new demographic of people. And also with, like I said, the plant-based movement now is no longer a grassroots movement. Mm. It's now mainstream. I sure. mean, we're seeing McDonald's serving plant-based meats. You know, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. The work of, uh, of of David Young of Green Common is an inspiration. I mean, he really is um, paving the way in, in, in plant-based uh, you know, innovation. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a possible beyond. And they're all, and now it's becoming almost acceptable and we're seeing meat eaters coming in and saying, you know, I'm going to have a couple of days a week where I'm not having meat. Sure. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And this is where it goes back to where I say, you know, what can people do? Look at what's on your plate. If it's, you know, if it's, if it's an animal for starters, uh, it would have had a, a, an implication on the environment somewhere along the line. Sure. Um, but yeah, other things, you know, get in touch with your local beach cleanups, uh, you know, look at what you're buying. So single-use plastic is one of the biggest threats to the ocean. Mm-hmm. Change one thing, just one thing in your daily routine. You know, take a reusable coffee cup or, or, you know, take a reusable bag. 
if everybody does a small thing, we can have a massive difference. Sure. But that's the thing. I agree. So you don't have to go all the way out to Antarctica or, you know, I went to Timor chasing shark boats in Timor. You don't have to do that. But of course, there is also that option out there. So. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary, you, like, yeah, you're, for me, you're, you're, you're way up there. Uh, is there any, anything coming up that you would like to highlight and that you think, man, this is a hot topic or anything else you wanted to, to basically bring attention to? And I will do my best to, to. Well, obviously the most current thing at the moment and on everybody's mind is COVID-19 and uh, everybody needs to stay safe and wear a mask. I mean, it's not even um, an issue. But make sure it's a reusable mask, please. Because <laughs> yeah. we don't want to be finding another 1.56 billion masks washing up in the environment. Yeah. So I think that's probably the, the one message to get out there at the moment is, you know, stay safe. But if you've got to wear a mask, wear a reusable. Huge. Huge. It, sa it sounds in the background that you're like uh, remodeling the kitchen. Are you taking down a wall? No, I'm actually sat on a balcony and I've got the waves breaking right below the balcony. Nice. Poor you. Sounds like it's a rough gorgeous. life. It's <laughs> gorgeous. Beautiful day in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, Gary, thank you so much. You're the best. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been great to chat. Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw.